The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Barry, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son, Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land For great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. We call upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Hosea is an amazing love story. But it's far from a typical love story that you and I might think of when we think of what love stories are like. This is not a Jane Austen sense and sensibility or pride and prejudice with a good, noble, and beautiful heroine and, of course, a corresponding good, noble, and handsome hero. No, it's not that kind of a love story. The book of Hosea is about undeserved love, God's love. It's about love that pursues and reaches out and brings the object of that love up out of the mud and mire. It's about God's gracious love, God's transforming love. The time is about 750 B.C. And the northern nation of Israel has fallen far 
far from its covenantal relationship to Yahweh, the Lord. And the nation is coming more and more under the judgment of God because of its idolatry, because of its adultery, we might say. In fact, within about 30 years from the prophecies that began in about 755 B.C. with Hosea, the nation will essentially be destroyed and taken into captivity. It will fall to the nation of Assyria. And Hosea is one of the prophets sent by God to warn the people of Israel of their folly and to call them back to their God, to call them back to trust in the Lord, to call them back to repentance from their idolatries, and to call them back to return to their first love. This is the kind of love story that the book of Hosea is about. It's also a love story that contains tough love because God rebukes them and speaks to them clearly about their idolatry and their sin, as we shall see. As we begin tonight with chapter 1, we might ask ourselves, what is the message that a backsliding and sinful people need to hear? What do you and I need to hear in terms of the Word of God when we and our hearts grow dull and we turn away from our first love? That judgment will come if they don't repent or if we don't repent? Yes, that's certainly a message from God, and that message is found in this book. And the nation of Israel, even during Hosea's ministry, was increasingly experiencing the judgment of God as the whole society and nation spun out of control and bore the fruits of their sin. But even more powerful than the threat of judgment is this message of God's love, God's mercy, the gospel message of God's love for sinners which is our only hope. And what a powerful message that is from this book. God's love that will not let go of us. That's the message of Hosea, and that's the message that transforms you and me as well as we hold to God through faith in Jesus Christ and know and experience and, and hold by faith God's love for us in Christ. Well, what do we learn from this opening chapter of Hosea about the great love of God for us? I would like us to look at it under three main points. The first is this, God's unusual call for Hosea to marry Gomer. God's unusual call for Hosea to marry Gomer. We see this calling described in verses 2 and 3, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Hosea's prophetic ministry took place from approximately 755 B.C., until and slightly beyond 722 B.C. 722 is when the nation fell finally and fully to Assyria. And it's probable that 
Hosea compiled his written message in Judah after Israel fell. But he prophesied orally and spoke the word of God to Israel, the northern nation, for those 30 years or so. And i imagining, it's not, we, we don't know Hosea's age when his ministry began, but I'm imagining that he was a relatively young man at the beginning of his ministry if he went on and prophesied for 30-plus years. Verse 2, we're told he is told by God to take to himself to marry, literally, a wife of fornications and children of fornications. Now, there are various interpretations of what that phrase or those phrases mean. Some have hesitated to take it in its most obvious sense, just not thinking that God would call him to do this. And so there's one view is the allegorical view. And that is that all of this is just a vision that Hosea has, that none of it actually takes place, but he has this vision from God that he's called to take this wife and so forth, but none of it actually takes place. Most people don't hold to that view anymore, that it is one view that's been held. The second view that's sometimes held is called the proleptic view. In this view, proleptic means it's speaking about something that would happen in the future. So this proleptic, that sense of the word. It's speaking about Gomer, Hosea's wife, becoming unfaithful in the marriage at some point. But it's speaking as if that's already the case, but it's not the case. In other words, according to this view, when they became married, and and when Hosea sought out his wife, she wasn't unfaithful then. That's a possible view, but of course, I take uh, what I think is the most commonly accepted view, and I believe the right view, of course, but this is the view that takes it in its most literal sense, that Hosea was called by God to marry a prostitute, and that he did so. He rescued her out of that lifestyle And it's very likely, and I take the view as well, that the phrase children of fornications means that he also adopted the illegitimate children of Gomer as well. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 2, verse 1. And so in this view, Hosea loves his wife-to-be by taking her out of prostitution, marrying her, and then, according to this view, and according to all the views, Gomer is unfaithful during the marriage as well, as we'll see when we get to chapter 3. So here we are. What a calling for this young prophet to take upon himself and to be commanded by God. And it's interesting that the Old Testament nowhere prohibits or says that it's sinful for a prophet to take a wife in this way or that it's ceremonially prohibited. It would have been prohibited ceremonially for a priest to do this. But for prophet, it's not prohibited. And certainly, it's a, it's a clear picture of how God loves us in his undeserved love, how he loves us in Christ, how he loves us in our sin and in our unfaithfulness. Here's Hosea. He sacrificed a normal married life, we might say, to love and shelter Gomer and her illegitimate children. And even when she reverted to her old ways after the marriage and went to live with another man, and we're not sure exactly how long this was or what she did, the prophet Hosea sought her and bought her and brought her back out of her ways of sin. What a powerful picture of God's love. 
And notice that the second half of verse 2 tells us that this is to be a picture that applies to what the nation was doing at that time. There's an explanatory clause at the end of this command to Hosea. It says, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. What was the Lord saying? He was saying, go take this wife of fornications because this is what the land has essentially done. The land has been unfaithful. The people, the nation have been unfaithful to their God. They've broken the covenant relationship with their God. Now, I want you to just stop and think how shocking this would have been for the people of Israel at that time. Even though the nation had fallen deeply into sin, it's kind of like if a young pastor nowadays were seeking a call. Of course, we have a son who's a young pastor seeking a call, so I can relate to this. He's doing his pastoral internship this year, and it's wrapping up next spring, and he's already starting to apply. And one of the things he's found is that churches really don't want a pastor who's not married, and he's not married yet, so it's a problem he's got. He might get on a staff church somewhere, but it's just interesting that churches have a certain, you know, kind of pastor they want, and they want him to be married and so forth. But can you imagine the disadvantage to be Hosea, preaching the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, and if he were a young pastor now seeking a church, can you imagine what his resume would say about describing, you know, his background, and then if he described his wife's background? You know, okay, put that resume on the no pile. You know, he wouldn't get very far. This is what God called Hosea to do. And this shocking command given by God to Hosea, and I think the reason that there are these other explanations is because it's just so shocking, and many commentators historically have been unable to say, well, we really believe God would have called Hosea to do this. This command was given to show the amazing depth of God's love for us. And of course, this love is even more clearly exhibited in the shocking death of Jesus Christ for sinners, for you and for me. And so as we think about this first point and God's calling on Hosea's life, Just meditate briefly with me on the greatness of God's love for us in Christ. It's absolutely vital that as Christians, we drink deeply of this truth. Because this leads to increased faith in Jesus Christ. It leads to our growth in Jesus Christ. And if you are here tonight and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ initially, if you haven't come to him, come to Christ and given him your life and cast yourself upon him and and turn from your sins and said to him, Lord, forgive me, give me new life. What is it that's going to convince you of that? What's going to move you to take that step? The most powerful, the deepest motivation of all is understanding and seeing something of the love of Jesus Christ that you and I do not deserve and will never deserve. And it helps us to grow in Christ every day. William Romain, one of the great leaders of the Great Awakening, said this about the battle against sin in our lives. He said, No sin can be crucified in heart or life unless it first be pardoned in conscience. There will be lack of faith to receive the strength of Jesus by whom alone it can be crucified. If it be not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. 
That's a pretty long quote, but essentially what William Romaine is saying here is that you can't put to death sin in your heart or life unless your conscience first knows that you are pardoned, that you are forgiven of your sin. You won't have faith to fight against sin and all its power if you haven't experienced the pardoning, forgiving power of Jesus Christ and his cross. That's the point he's making here. He's saying it cannot be subdued in its power. Sin can't be put down and resisted in its power if it's not mortified in its guilt. In other words, if the guilt of sin is not cleansed first. And really, William Romain is is pointing us to the power of God's love in Christ. God's love that forgives us through the gospel and through what Jesus Christ did. Well, that's the command to Hosea. Secondly, let us look at the naming of Hosea's children. The children are named in verses 4 through 9. And these children, the three that we're going to look at here, are what commentaries call the sign children. They're the children that Hosea has and conceives with his wife. I believe that they're distinct from the children referred to in verse 2 because these are not children of unfaithfulness. These are children born of Hosea and Gomer's marriage. But there's disagreement about that, and it's not absolutely clear. But when we come to chapter 2, verse 1, there's this command that we're going to see, say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, plural, my loved ones. Well, commentators wrestle about, well, who are my sisters there? Because one daughter is born. Why are there two of them? And who is saying this? My view is that the people called to say to their brothers and sisters in chapter 2, verse 1, are the sign children, the three that are born, and they're able to say this to the children of unfaithfulness, the ones who are adopted, of course, later on as, as they grow up. But let us look at the three children that are born and the names that are given to them because they have a clear message. The first is in verses 3 through 5. So he, Hosea, married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So there's this first son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So this first son is to be named Jezreel, and he would signify... God's judgment on Israel. You have to know a little bit about the history of Israel. Jehu was really raised up by God to punish the dynasty before him. And actually, in 2 Kings 10, verse 30, God approves of what Jehu does in Jezreel when he overthrows the former kingdom. So I believe that the translation of this verse should be not so much, the verb does not have to be, I will soon punish the house of Jehu. It should be, I will visit the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. In other words, how could God approve of what Jehu did in Second Kings 10 and then say he's punishing them for what Jehu did here? What he's saying is he's saying the same kind of judgment executed by Jehu at Jezreel on that day in the past is going to be executed on Israel now. And so the first child is signifying God's judgment. 
And even if you didn't follow all that I just said there about what that translation should be, the main point here is this son is a sign child, a declaration, a proclamation of God's judgment about to come on the nation. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. And by the way, that all was fulfilled. Assyria came, and the nation was deeply judged and destroyed. Well, the second child to be born is in verses 6 and 7. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. So Lo-Ruhamah, which means no compassion, because God will no longer show love to the house of Israel. It's interesting, verse 7 tells us he's still going to show love to Judah for a time. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. So the southern kingdom of Judah is spared for over a hundred years until the judgment of God overtakes them as well. But again, the daughter's, the second child's name is a name that Israel's unfaithful adultery before God will lead to the dissolution of the covenant relationship with God. God is no longer going to show love to them. So again, a negative meaning of the term. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see the third child. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. A son is born. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Again, a powerful and negative connotation that the people of Israel are no longer considered God's people by God. There is this sense of rejection of them, of judgment that's fallen upon them. And so, the naming of Hosea's children has a powerful message, both to Israel, and it's a message that applies to all of us apart from Christ, and that is our hopeless condition under the judgment of God, under his condemnation, apart from Jesus Christ. Well, this was a hard message for Hosea to preach. And you can imagine him preaching this message for many years. We're going to see that there's more to the message than this. But just think of the aspect of this message that Hosea had to preach. Can you imagine, as a young prophet, for example, proclaiming in Israel that God was going to judge Israel, that his judgment would most surely come upon them? And it was surely fulfilled 25, 30 years after Hosea began to preach. In 722, the nation was destroyed. If you were to do that these days, imagine standing up and proclaiming something about God's judgment on the United States. You might be branded as unpatriotic. I'm sure that there were those who said that to Hosea. But the most difficult thing about Hosea's message was not that it was unpatriotic patriotic in some sense. No, the most difficult and the thing that cut most deeply is it that it's, it's a message that showed the desperate condition of sinners apart from God's grace. That's what these names convey. This idea of God's judgment, God having no compassion, not being the 
people of God. It reminds us of Ephesians when Paul talks about Gentiles who don't know Christ, that they were with separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, without hope and without God in the world. That's the picture of everyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. These are a declaration. These names are a declaration of what the people and what the nation deserved. They deserved judgment. They deserved to be cut off from God's covenant. And this message of judgment, thankfully, is not the last word, as we'll see. But it's a very important part of the gospel that we need to hear, we need to be convinced of, and that we need to understand that that as Christians, we need to be reminded of as well. The message that we are sinners saved by grace, and the message of our condemnation apart from Jesus Christ makes the message of God's love that pursues us and holds us up one that shines more brightly to us, doesn't it? What is the greatest obstacle for many people that keeps them from turning to Jesus Christ? Maybe they haven't heard the gospel. Maybe they don't understand it. Maybe they have some problems with God's supernatural intervention in the world. All those kinds of things are true. But very often, one of the greatest obstacles is the sense of being a pretty good person. I'm not that bad a person. I don't really need God that much. I'll pay God his due and maybe attend church a couple times a year or I'll I'll give a nod to spirituality and acknowledge in some way some cosmic force that's out there. But there's very little sense. There's not a sense of desperate need because of our sinfulness. The person walking around on the street who, who doesn't know what the Bible says about this just doesn't have a sense that he or she is desperately lost and under the condemnation of God because of his or her sin. We just don't naturally think we're all that bad. Of course, the opposite is sometimes true, that people have such a sense of unworthiness, possibly from being victimized at some point in their life, that they feel so unworthy, they feel like they have to work forever to try to make themselves worthy enough to finally be able to come to God. But again, that's contrary to the gospel as well, because we can never, and we must never try to make ourselves worthy enough to come to God. People who think they are good enough don't understand what the Bible says and the true nature of our hearts and how desperately we need Jesus Christ. Well, these names point us to our desperate state in Christ. But finally, we see God's message of gospel hope in reversing the children's names. This is our third point. God's message of gospel hope in reversing the children's names. At chapter 1, verse 10, we read this. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved ones. Here there's a prophecy in verses 10 and 11 that is stunning. It's breathtaking. And there's no transition between the negative condemnation of the names that ends at verse 9 
And suddenly, there is this, without any mention of repentance, without any mention of the prophet Hosea interceding for them or praying them for them, you go from the total despair of verse 9, not the people of God, to this total reversal in verses 10 and 11 in chapter 2, verse 1. And that is only by the miraculous grace and intervention of God. There's this complete turnaround which shows us that it is all of God's grace. Notice what is said here. The Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, hearkening back to what God said to Abraham. And instead of not being the people of God, they're going to be called sons of the living God. And then there's prophecy of this leader that will come, and certainly it's a messianic foreshadowing of the coming of Christ and possibly looking even to his second coming, his return in glory. And great will be the day of Jezreel. And then there's this proclamation that the sign children declare to the children of unfaithfulness that they are my people, my loved ones. It's a declaration of God's grace. This is the love of God that never lets go of us. And God takes our names, which are written for judgment and condemnation, and reverses the sentence upon us through Jesus Christ and his cross and makes us his very own. He makes us children of God, sons of the living God. That's the gospel. That's the the message of hope that Hosea holds out for us here. And it's a message that we need to take to heart. And we need to ask ourselves, well, what what is the impact that this pursuing love of God, mirrored and reflected in what Hosea did, taking this wife of unfaithfulness and marrying her, and as we'll see, pursuing her when she falls back into her unfaithful ways. If that's the love of God, what's the impact on my life? I would just like us to think of three brief applications to ourselves. One is, seeing and knowing God's love for us in Christ strengthens our faith in Christ. Seeing and knowing God's love for us, this kind of love, strengthens our faith in Christ. Why is the New Testament full of references to the love of Christ? Why is it full of what Jesus did for us in humbling himself? Why do we find in Ephesians 4 and 5 when the apostle is calling the Ephesians to a new obedience in life and turning away from their old ways of sin and putting on new ways of sin? Why is it always pointing us back to what Jesus Christ did? Why is that always embedded in the text? It's because we cannot change our lives simply by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and doing what we know God wants us to do. No, we need to be transformed from within. And the transforming power is from the love of Jesus Christ poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what builds up our faith. And as we behold Jesus Christ and hold to him by faith, we are more and more able to put to death sin in our lives and to live for Jesus Christ. Secondly, seeing God's love for us in Christ helps us to more genuinely hate sin and turn from it. Seeing God's love that doesn't let go of us helps us to more deeply hate our sin and turn from it. You might think it would be the other way around, wouldn't it? It's like the people who objected to the Apostle Paul and and said that if you really preach grace, then you're giving license to sin. 
If people really are convinced of grace, that they're saved by grace, then, you, then you're going to spur people on to live sinful lives. And Paul says that's not the case at all. No, not at all. He says if you really understand the gospel and that you are a new creation in Christ and that Jesus Christ has given you new life, that's going to motivate you more and more to live for Jesus Christ and to be done with your ways of sin. If you know that your father loves you and has set his love upon you and will not let go of you and pursues you and forgives you and always is at work for your good, then as you believe that by faith, you will more and more want to get rid of everything in your life that displeases him. You're going to want to more and more walk in a way that causes your father to delight and rejoice as you take baby steps in growth in Christ. Seeing God's love helps us to more genuinely hate our sin. And thirdly, seeing God's love for us in Christ makes us more deeply long for glory. As we know that God's love for us is the same kind of love that Hosea exhibited for his wife, calling her and marrying her and taking her out of her ways of sin and taking her as a beautiful bride. And, and we just think of that imagery. We see how that's not us in and of ourselves. We don't come to God with a, a beautiful white wedding gown. We come with our garments all soiled with our sin. And then Jesus Christ makes us a new creation and begins to transform us with ever-increasing glory. But in this life, it's incomplete. And we grieve over that. And we hate our remaining sin. And we long to be like Jesus Christ. And so, the result is, we long for his appearing. We long for glory. And then, it turns around, and that longing for glory transforms us more and more now in this life. So you see, both in strengthening our faith and helping us to turn from sin and helping us to long for glory, it's the love of Jesus Christ that motivates us. It's this undeserved love that will not let us go. The book of Hosea is a gospel book. We're going to see it's got the gospel in powerful ways. It's a book that calls us to turn away from our adulteries, our unfaithfulness, our idolatries that still hold on and are found in our hearts. But it's a book about God's love that will not let us go. Thanks be to God. May you stand in the love of God this week as you trust Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of his church. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this Old Testament picture that you've given to us of your grace to us. We know that we lose sight of your love very easily. We know that we become dull of spirit and that in turn, as we lose sight of your love, we lose our first love for you. Forgive us for doing that. Forgive us for our backslidings. Forgive us for our unfaithfulness. Forgive us for the fact that friendship with the world we know is is being an enemy of God. And even as James calls us out of that friendship with the world, we pray that you would help us to be true to you as we trust in your unfailing love for us. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.